Thank you, Jeff. Once again, please welcome the Navarra College Choir.
Somebody say rejoice. rejoice. Amen. What a blessing. Navarro Choir, what a great joy to have you guys with us today. First Baptist Church, let's give them another big round of applause. Thank you, Navarro College Choir. Amen. Amen. Well, let me, let me say this. Not only are they great singers, they're great singers in the early morning. Um, I was turning on the lights and opening the building today. And um, lo and behold, they were arriving here, I guess, about 7 o'clock. I mean, it was it was early. And um, and they were in here limbering up their lips and their voice and doing all the stuff to get ready. And um, whatever you did, Dr. Harrison, well done. Um, students, well done. We're very thankful that you are here. Uh, we're glad that you received our invitation to come. Uh, we have invited the Navarro College football team to join us. There were like over a 100 football players. Uh, we've had the girls soccer team come and be with us. And now our invitation has been extended to you. And we want you to know that if you're looking for a church home, we want you to come right here. Uh, we have a have room for you. We have a spot for you. Amen. Amen. 
And also, in addition to that, um, Jeff Turner, thanks for coming today. Jeff's a dear friend of mine. He's a friend of our church. And um, when he came this morning as the director of the Baptist Student Ministry, I said, hey, we've got a great surprise for you. We've got students from Navarro College. So, guys, I want you all to meet him. Jeff, there they are right there. So you can connect with them. And so we're trying to make it easy. But our church loves the BSM, and we are a deep supporter of everything that happens out there. Well, today I want to begin... Uh, with a very interesting question. The question is, what's the best sandwich you've ever had? Now, that's probably a question that surprises you this morning to begin a message that way, but I want to tell you my story, and you can be thinking about your own. Uh, probably breakfast time is not the exact time to be thinking about a sandwich, but you'll understand in just a moment. The best sandwich I ever had in my entire life was in the city of Philadelphia, uh, we were there on family vacation. We had gone to the Reading Terminal Market. And if you don't know what Reading Terminal Market is, it's a place that has about 80-plus food vendors that are serving up some of the best that Philadelphia has to offer. Uh, there is more in Philadelphia than just a Philly cheesesteak, I want you to know. And that day as I went there, I went to a place called Herschel's East Side Deli. And I stepped up to the counter and the gentleman said, well, sir, would you like our special of the day? And I said, that sounds great to me. And he gave me a pastrami sandwich. And as this pastrami sandwich hit my lips, I literally thought in my mind, this is the best sandwich I've ever had. Now, this morning I'm going to surprise you because in addition to serving it up in Philadelphia... I need to let you know that the Bible also serves up some of the best sandwiches you've ever had in your life. And we're going to find one of these sandwiches in today's passage this morning. But before we get to our sandwich, just to allow the suspense to settle with us a little bit longer, I want to tell you where we are as a church because you're our guest, Jeff. You're our guest today. Y'all haven't been with us. Maybe there's other guests. We have been in this ongoing study of the second book in our New Testament called the Gospel of Mark. And we are calling this series The Remarkable Life of Jesus because that's what the Gospels are all about, revealing the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And um, today is the eighth sermon in this series. And, and here's what we've learned so far about the Gospel of Mark. We've learned, first of all, that even though Matthew appears first chronologically in our New Testament, that it was the Gospel of Mark that was written first. Mark's Gospel was used by the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and John as source material as those Gospels were written. We also learned that Mark was written for a Roman audience, and we know this about the Romans, they loved action. And so Mark is a gospel of action. It actually contains more miracles per chapter than any other book in the entire New Testament. Uh, the most common word in the book of Mark is the little Greek word euthus, and it literally means quickly or immediately because it tells the story of Jesus going quickly here and immediately there and all the many things that he does. The action never stops. I say the Gospel of Mark is like a Hollywood producer that says lights, camera, say it with me, action. Well, the action today leads us to a sandwich. The action today leads us to a sandwich. The title of this morning's message is Two Stories 
and one sandwich. Take your Bibles in hand today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one right in front of you in the pew pocket. If you're sitting on the front, it's underneath your legs there. We invite you to go to God's Word. It'll be on the screen with us as well. But before we read Mark chapter 5, I want to tell you and define what a sandwich is this morning. In other words, I need to explain sandwiching. Now, sandwiching is a literal tool that we're going to see Mark's author use today. It's also called bracketing. It's also called intercalation. Turn to your friend right now next to you, say intercalation. All right, there's going to be a test at the end of the service, all right? Remember that word. So sandwiching is called bracketing or intercalation. A very simple tool, here's how it works. When the Gospel of Mark is written in certain places, we have these Markan sandwiches. And here's what a sandwich is. He begins telling the first story, and then before the first story is completed, he tells a second story, and then he comes back and he finishes the first story. So the first story sandwiches itself around the second story. And if you don't understand sandwiching, you're not going to understand certain sections of the gospel of Mark. Because it's crucial, as we understand Mark's gospel, that one story helps us interpreting the other. And so with that knowledge today, we're about to read a Mark and sandwich. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word today. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. I'll be reading, as always, from the New International Version. And the way it's titled in my text today, it begins with the story of a dead girl and a sick woman. Verse 21, story number one. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Call a pause on story number one. And now it's time for story number two. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, against you, the disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. End of story two, back now to story one. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion. With people crying and wailing loudly, he went and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep, but they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was only 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Today, church family, before you're seated, I want to tell you that my prayer for me and for you today has been this, that we would see the faith of Jairus, that we would see the faith of this bleeding woman and that we would learn for ourselves what it takes in faith to unleash the power of God in our lives. God bless you. You may be seated. So this morning we have two stories. The story of Jairus pleading with Jesus to come save his daughter. Uh, we have the middle story, the story that is sandwiched in between the incident with the desperate bleeding woman. And then we go back to that first story, the return to Jairus' daughter when Jesus raises her from the dead. And to begin today, even though we're going to sandwich these stories, I want to start by looking at them distinctly. We have to start by allowing these stories to be separate and distinct. What are the first, what are the points that we can draw from story number one? Today I'm going to offer four points I think we ought to see. First, we have Jairus, who was an official of the synagogue. And he comes desperately begging for Jesus to come heal his daughter. But while Jesus dawdles, and that's the way Jairus would have seen it, with this unknown, important woman, his daughter passes away. That's point number one. The second thing we have to see is that Jairus is told to just believe. You see, he had shown great faith in coming to Jesus, but now he's being asked to hold on to that faith. He's being asked to continue in that faith. He's being asked to, hey, wait in such a desperate moment to wait in faith. The third point. Jesus and Jairus are met by a grievous chorus of people mourning the death of this sweet little girl. And this moment is another huge obstacle to faith. And if that's not enough, then this crowd, and you read it with me, they begin to even laugh at Jesus when he says the girl was just sleeping. And as a result, their skepticism, it puts them outside. In other words, there will be no miracles today for this scornful, believing, disbelieving throng. Point number four. After the miracle, Jesus commands them to secrecy. Note that today. It further reveals he's not interested at all in turning their jeers into cheers. Those are the four things that we can see in story number one. And so now let's move to the points that we glean or need to glean from story number two. Uh, six things I want to offer here. In the second story, we have an anonymous woman who comes to Jesus. 
She's been bleeding abnormally for 12 whole years. It's terrible. You can put yourself in her place today. But if that's not enough, it gets even worse because her illness would have classified her as unclean in the Jewish society. You see, she's just like a biblical leper. She's somebody who has been excluded from normal social relations. She's on the outside of everything in her world looking in. She's a nobody, an outsider. Point number two, she refuses to accept this disease as her lot in life. And as we see in the story, she boldly takes the matters into her own hands. She goes crawling through a crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus' clothes. Now, I want you to look on the screen. I thought we would call a time out here and allow you to just soak this painting in. This is a, a phenomenal painting that I saw for the first time when I went to Magdala in Israel. Several of you in the room were with us that day as we saw this for the very first time. It's a mural painted on a wall. And I remember we sat there and we sang and, and I actually began to weep because of this picture. This picture is called Encounter. It's, it's painted by Daniel Cariola. And if you look closely, when I first saw it, I thought, well, that's an interesting painting of feet. But if you look closely, you see the hand of the bleeding woman desperately reaching through to touch the bottom of Jesus' robe. Point number three, as we think about that painting, as soon as Jesus is touched... He immediately asked who touched him. And as soon as he asked who touched him, this woman was seized with fear. You say, Pastor, why would she have been afraid? Well, she may have felt guilt for violating the purity regulations that were certainly laid upon her by touching this holy man. She may have been concerned that she had stolen power away from Jesus. Or maybe she realized in that moment that this man did have amazing power and she stood in awe and fear. Point number four, Jesus calls to her. He singles her out. Let me ask you this morning, is that what this woman wanted? Certainly not. She wanted to remain anonymous. She wasn't supposed to be here in the first place. But but Jesus does that so that she will leave knowing that the one who healed her, he knows her and he cares about her and he sees her. Point number five. There are no magical properties in Jesus' clothes. Don't walk away today thinking somehow the garments that touch Jesus' body somehow produce some sort of magic. No, that's not the case at all. It's not a magic cloak. It's not a magic robe. This is not some sort of scene from Harry Potter. No, this is the divine power of God the Son. And it's her faith in Him that heals her. Do you see Christ's words? Daughter, your faith. Has healed you. Point number six, Jesus dismisses her in peace. He continues his words. Go in peace, he said, and be freed from your suffering. We ought to pay attention to that word peace. Do you know that this woman had none? This woman had none. And that word peace, it rolls off the tongue for us. But here's what it meant in the time of Jesus. It meant the idea of wholeness. Well-being, 
prosperity, security, friendship, salvation, all of those things this woman did not know. Jesus was bestowing all of that on her when he said, go in peace. So we have two main characters. Now, obviously, Jesus is the central character. But the two main characters, folks, we we have to connect them because these two characters are so vastly different. They occupy the opposite ends of the economic world. They they occupy the opposite ends of the social life. They They occupy the opposite ends of the religious spectrum. We ought to note their differences today. Let's lay them out right here in this room. We have Jairus. What is he? He's a man. We have a bleeding woman. And just to lay it out for us today, friends, there are only two genders, male and female. And we couldn't be any more drastically different in the two kinds. God says, I made them male and female. These people are different. Men are from, women are from Venus. Men are from Mars, the book says. The second thing. Jairus was a man of distinction. The bleeding woman was a nobody. Societally, she was nothing. Did you know every day a Jewish man actually prayed this prayer? It sounds terrible today, but it's the truth. He prayed to God, God, today I praise you that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. A man of distinction. A nobody. Jairus was a pure leader of the synagogue. He was a religious man. This woman, she was impure. She was walking pollution. Right. He has a name. We see it in the text. He was Jairus, the synagogue leader. Do we know her name? No, she's she's nameless. He's honorable. She has no honor. He approaches Jesus face to face, direct request. She slinks up from behind so that Jesus doesn't even see her. He's a man of means. She's destitute. She spent all her money on her medical bills. Friends, the only thing these two people in this society have in common is that they've heard about Jesus. They're desperate for Jesus and they've run out of options, you see. Dr. David Garland said it so well. He said the truth of this entire episode is made known when the two stories are viewed in stereo. So we have to unlock the truths of these stories. You see, it's only when we bring them together that we begin to understand what's being taught to us in this text. And here's the first thing. In God's kingdom, the nobodies become somebody. Somebody say amen. In God's kingdom, the nobodies become somebodies. You see, being a somebody like Jairus provided no advantage in approaching Jesus. Being a male, being ritually pure, holding a high religious office, being a man of means, none of that gave Jairus any advantage whatsoever. But now add this an equal way. Being a nobody was no barrier to receiving help. Being female, it wasn't a hindrance. Being impure was not a hindrance, dishonored, destitute, no barriers for this woman at all. God always takes the side of the oppressed and the poor. Let me tell you a story about Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo was a, was a preacher. 
And one day he said he was in Haiti with his son. His son's name was Bart. Bart was just 17 years old, and they were walking down one of the main streets of Port-au-Prince when they found themselves just surrounded by these impoverished, raggedy children. These children were running up, and they were begging for pennies. That's what they were asking for, just pennies. And Campolo turned to his son, and he said, Bart, don't give them anything, because if you do, they won't stop until they have every dime that we have. And his son looked at him quizzically, and he said, So? Campolo said he was convicted by his son's response because Bart was letting it be known that being a Christian was to render everything, all of life's resources to meet the needs of others in the name of Jesus Christ. It was a lesson that being a nobody is no barrier to receiving the help of Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters with God and Jesus is a person's faith. You see, faith is the equivalency, isn't it? Faith enables all people, honored and dishonored, pure and and unclean, to tap into the merciful power of Jesus that brings healing that we all need and salvation that we all need and cleaning that we all need. The truth of this story is that in God's kingdom, nobodies become somebodies. Praise be to God. The second lesson today, these stories show Jesus has the power to overcome the defilement of ceremonial uncleanness, bleeding, and death. And guess what? Not only to overcome it, but to reverse it. Let me put it in easier terms to remember. In Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus' power over danger. He quieted a scary storm. We didn't study this story, but we also see, if you read the story right before this, we see his amazing power over demons. He exercised demons from a scary man. And now from danger to demons, he adds his dominance over disease and death. Folks, Jesus purges and overcomes filth and impurity. He touches a leper. The man is healed. He walks into tombs. Demons are driven out. He's touched by one with a hemorrhage and she's made whole. He touches a dead girl and she's brought to life. He doesn't need to purify himself after he's been with the sick and the diseased and the dead. No, friends, Jesus is the purity. Let's think about our lives these past several years. How many squirts... How many squirts of hand sanitizer have you used in the last several years? Oh, my soul. I shook hands with a person. Right? He coughed in my general direction. You come in contact with somebody who was sick, you throw up one of these. Right? It's amazing what we've done. But Jesus doesn't need hand sanitizer. If I may today, Jesus is the spiritual soul sanitizer. He touches those things. And he overcomes the defilement. And he reverses it. Jesus doesn't get dirty. Those things get clean. Those people get clean. Somebody say amen to that. Another lesson today. Jesus triumphs over death. That's the power of the story. That's why the choir could sing today. That's why they say, I can't stop singing. Jesus overcomes death. Jesus wins over death. Amen and amen. Jesus conquers death. Now, this truth does not take away, let's let's say this. 
It doesn't take away the reality that no matter how genuine or desperate our faith, everyone's not healed. And everyone's not saved from earthly death. There are people in this room today that you say, Pastor, I, I went to Jesus and I cried out desperately. But it didn't happen for me. Friends, today we have to look beyond the moment of suffering to the eternal significance of Christ's power. Our faith is in Jesus' power to conquer death, not simply to restore things the way they used to be. We find ourselves praying all the time, but sometimes the healing is so much greater than the elimination of the cancer, the healing of the stroke, the overcoming of the heart attack. In the end, folks, we know no matter what happens here, if a person knows Christ, if they're in Christ, if their faith is in Christ, death loses. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, life always wins in Jesus Christ. But before we finish today, we need to lay out a few lessons about faith. Because that's what the sandwich really is filled with, isn't it? I stepped up and got a pastrami sandwich in Philadelphia, but today we step up and we get a faith sandwich. That's what the stories really are all about. So let's walk through several things we need to walk away with to receive the full sustenance of this meal. Here's the first thing. Faith opens the door to the power of God. Faith can be imperfect. Faith can be bold. It can be halting. It can be brave. It can be filled with fear. But for faith to be effective, it has to be directed in the right direction, and that's toward Jesus Christ. You see, faith transfers divine power to those who are powerless. If we want to see the power of God, have faith. The second lesson on faith, faith shows persistence in overcoming any obstacle. Look at the story today. Faith steps forward. Faith works its way through an intimidating crowd despite fear and trembling and acknowledges the power of Jesus to heal our lives. Faith disregards a sad announcement about a daughter's death. It moves forward even in the midst of the face of mocking laughter and it refuses to give in to fear and scorn. Faith shows persistence. Uh, The third thing today, faith is embodied in action. Now, a lot of times we think faith is some invisible, ethereal type thing. But I want to submit to you today that faith is something you can see. Have you ever seen faith? I have. I've seen faith again and again. Faith kneels sometimes. Faith begs sometimes. Faith reaches out to touch. Faith just keeps believing. Faith just keeps smiling. Faith just keeps going. Uh, There's an old rabbinic version of the parting of the Red Sea story that says the text really means that the people waded out into the sea up to their nostrils before the waters divided to expose dry ground. And I like that because those are steps of faith. That's what faith is all about. Faith doesn't wait to see if the waters divide before we put our toe out there. No, faith just steps out and believes. Faith just trusts God to do what's needed. You see, you can't secretly have faith. Faith isn't something that you can hide. 
Faith is something that requires public testing. It's something that can be seen, and I believe it has to be seen. James tells us faith without works is dead faith. The fourth lesson. Faith is moved by what? By the desperation that Jesus is sufficient to meet whatever need you have. Let me ask you today. How desperate are you for Jesus? Are you desperate for Jesus? Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus can save you? Are you reaching out in a crowd that certainly might disapprove of what you're doing and going to church and being a person of faith, right? But you don't care because you believe and have faith that Jesus is your answer and you're not going to stop. Do you have faith like that? Do you trust so God so much that you're willing to walk out nostrils deep knowing that God is the one who's going to part your waters? Do you have faith in God's kingdom that always makes nobodies into somebodies?